you are listening to the Revive Church Podcast. We pray that this sermon blesses you and enhances your walk with God. Feel free to come worship with us on a Sunday morning, or you can learn more about us online at revivechurch.org. Well, good morning. So today we're going to look at a story, another conversation, um, and this one, kind of, as I know it's hard to believe, but Jesus once again gets embroiled in controversy. So we're going we're gonna to look at uh, an event that took place, and it took place on the Sabbath, and we're going to talk a lot about what that meant. So let's take a look at the text. We're, t- we're looking at John 5, verses 1 through 17. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed them. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for providing this story so that we may gain some clarity about your desire for our hearts, Lord. Be with me as I share this word and open the hearts of those here that they may gain something that brings them closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus had just come down from, uh, come down to Jerusalem. He had been in Samaria for a couple of days, then he scooted up to uh, Galilee and was in Cana. And we heard those stories of the last few weeks. And he comes by this pool near the Sheep Gate called Bethesda, which um, where is a place where the sick and the lame would come in the hopes of being able to get into the pool and be healed. And they, there was a story about their waters needing to be stirred up. Now, a little side note about that stirring up. How many of your Bibles have uh, John 5, verse 4 in it? Have you ever looked? If they do, I suspect that if you were reading along with the text, you thought I'd forgotten something. Actually, most modern translations do not include verse 4. But I mention it here because it helps our understanding to the reference of the water being stirred up. Verse 4 indicates that an angel would come and stir up the water in the pool. Historical legend then suggests that the first person to enter the pool after it was stirred up would be healed. Modern textual scholarship questions the reliability of this. 
and even whether it is part of the original manuscript, the original text. So, in most modern translations, you won't see verse 4. But they did leave the numbering system intact, so if you look, and I'm going to watch everyone open their Bibles right now, if you look, the text goes from verse 3 to verse 5. So there's your little known fact for today. The next time you want to drive someone crazy, have them look up John 5.4. The pool that Jesus passes is called Bethesda, which is thought to come from the Aramaic Bethesda, meaning, according to Easton's Bible Dictionary, either house of mercy or house of grace. This was a place where those who certainly needed mercy or grace would gather hoping for a miracle through their chance to enter the pool. Jesus sees an invalid man who he knows has been there for 38 years. And knowing he'd been there so long, he approaches him and asks if he wants to be healed. Now, I don't know about you, but this seems to me to be an awfully strange question to ask someone who's got an infirmity if they want to be healed. I would say that most of us, if we're sick or otherwise injured, would be seeking healing. So why does Jesus ask the question? Well, commentators suggest that it served a threefold purpose. First, to focus the man's attention on Jesus. This was a crowded place. The text tells us that, um, that there were five colonnades, so this was like great big patios that were covered. And he wanted the man to know that he was being addressed. Second, to encourage the hope in him towards his healing, to, to really see that he you know, has an opportunity. Now, 38 years is a long time. This man's hope must have pretty much vanished at this point. And he was probably just going through the motions of being there at the pool in the hopes that just simple repetition would grant him some merit. Finally, so that he recognized uh, his, his infirmity and the value of the gift uh, that he was going to be receiving. Sometimes when we suffer with something for long enough, we incorporate it into who we are so much that we wouldn't recognize life without it. Even Paul talks about the thorn in his side frequently in his letters. And so some sort of, we suspected some sort of infirmity that he carried with him and, and wanted healing from it, but God kept saying, nope, this is what's keeping you focused, so you get to stay with it. But we incorporate it so much into who we are that we just, we don't know what to do without it. And it would be weird. Um, the, the story Stephen mentions about the man at the beautiful gate, um, you know, think about that. Here's a man who has spent his entire life begging. And now suddenly he is healed. What's he gonna do for a living to make money? So it's a, you know, we just get so used to where we are that we don't, uh, we don't think past that. So, so we need to deal with the circumstances where God puts us, but it doesn't mean the circumstances define us. Nor does it mean that God doesn't have a plan, both for the time of our suffering and ultimately for the time, if it's his will, at the point of healing. So after Jesus approaches him, we see the man recount his circumstances and his inability to get into the pool. And so Jesus has compassion on this man. And so he heals him and tells him to get up and walk. 
It's a miracle. Praise God. Oh, wait. A couple of notes here. This occurred on the Sabbath, a day for which the Jews had strict rules about what could be performed without it being considered work. And then we see Jesus just walks away. Normally, when Jesus heals the sick, raises the dead, or casts out a demon, the afflicted person comes to an understanding of faith, is grateful, and goes off praising God for the miracle. We see an example of this in Matthew 9, 27-31. Jesus encounters two blind men who express their faith and are healed and then go forth spreading the news. As Jesus went on from there, the two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Just like that. Yes, Lord, they replied. That's their affirmation of faith. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, will it be done to you? And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. Last week, we looked at several examples in the Gospel of Mark of the same type of behavior. But this didn't happen here. In fact, it's almost as if Jesus happened upon this man, acts if he wanted to be well, and then just moves on. So let's take a little time dealing with the fact that this occurred on the Sabbath. Let's see if this helps. Uh, unless we have particularly observant Jewish friends, as we, Christ, we, we as Christians don't often totally understand the way the Jews view the Sabbath. Our understanding is often limited to the idea that the Sabbath is a day of rest, a time to break from the routine and focus on the worship of God. That's not a bad start, but it doesn't begin to embody what the Jews in Jesus' time were expected to observe. Even today, Orthodox Jews live by very much the same standards that existed at the time of our story. Now, there's no specific listing in the Bible of the types of labor which are prohibited on the Sabbath, although there are many allusions to the type of labor which were not to be performed. Exodus 34.21 refers to resting from plowing or harvesting on the seventh day. It says, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. Numbers 15, 32 to 36, recounts a story of a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath, probably to start a fire, which, well, we'll get to that in a second, who was brought to Moses and Aaron, and the Lord told Moses to have him stoned to death for violating the Sabbath. Nehemiah 13, 15 through 18, talks about treading in a winepress and bringing in goods and selling them. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading on wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them onto donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they had sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and, and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah 
And I said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not God bring all this disaster on, on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Jeremiah 17.22 warns against the carrying of any burden. And do not carry a burden out of your house on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Even traveling or kindling fire, remember our guy gathering sticks, even traveling or kindling fire were prohibited. There's a couple of examples in Exodus 16 and Exodus 35. Now the Jewish religious leaders would discuss what exactly Scripture meant by work and what constituted a burden. These discussions ultimately resulted in something called the 39 Melakot. So I've got a slide that breaks these down a little bit. These are the general categories of labor that are forbidden on the Sabbath. They're broken into six general categories with specifics under each category. The six categories are field work, which would have um, included anything, sowing, plowing, reaping. You can see anything to do with anything with the harvest or field, working in the field. Making material curtains. So right down from, from the beginning, from shearing wool right down to, you know, um, sewing the curtains together. Making leather curtains. It's kind of interesting that they split between leather and, but it's because if you look at the, the details, there's a different set of things that were not per, permitted. Uh, making the beams of the Mishkan, the Mishkan being the tabernacle. So, um, doing anything that would have led to laying out the structure, so drafting, designing, anything like that. Putting up or taking down to the Mishkan. Remember, whenever the Jewish people traveled, they would set up the tabernacle. But this was not prohibited on the Sabbath. And then final touches of the Mishkan. And this is where we see things like kindling a fire or striking a hammer blow or carrying anything. These rules, and, and these are the general categories and some examples. Underneath these examples were more interpretations of details that would have led to a violation under the Jewish leader's interpretation of what Sabbath was to be. The rules were so strict as to define any work that led to one of the uh, forbidden activities was assumed to be part of that activity. Today, observant Jews would not only avoid forbidden acts, but avoid anything that might be confused for a forbidden act or refrain from habits that are linked in any way to a forbidden act or anything that might lead to a forbidden act. So this is serious, very strict, very legalistic. Now given the level of attention and detail devoted to the Sabbath rules and prohibitions, it seems strange that Jesus not only would have healed this invalid, but further told him to pick up his bed, which would have been a clear violation of the Sabbath. Remember God's instruction to Moses about the man who was caught gathering sticks. This also isn't the only time Jesus was called out for failing to observe the Sabbath. In Matthew 12, 1 to 2, it says, At that time Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, 
Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So Jesus responds with a story from Samuel 21, where David and his men were hungry, and they were uh, near the tabernacle, and they sought out the consecrated bread of the priest from Ahimelech. Now, Ahimelech recognized, of course, this is probably would have been a violation of the Sabbath under the strict Jewish laws. But what he said to David was, as long as your men are not defiled, then I will give it to you to eat. Later in Matthew 12, 9 through 14, we read, And behold, there was a man with a withered hand, and they questioned him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? In order that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man shall there be among you who shall have one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? So then is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? So it is, law, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So what's Jesus trying to convey in the way he observes Sabbath? Is he rebelling against the tyranny of the Pharisees? As a Jew, he would have been expected to observe Jewish law and tradition. But if we look a little closer, we see that Jesus was being pragmatic. Like David and his men, Jesus' disciples were hungry, and being in a field of grain took advantage and ate of the harvest that was readily available. When challenged about healing on the Sabbath, he clearly states that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus was trying to remind not only his disciples and the people, but also the Jewish leaders, that the Sabbath was not about rules and regulations, but rather about the opportunity to relax in God's provision. Mark 2.27, which is this, Mark's version of this story about the, the uh, disciples picking the grain and eating it, in conclusion of the story, he says, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus was trying to put things in perspective. He was also giving voice to the idea that he was the new covenant. He was to usher in a replacement of the Old Testament covenant, of the Old Covenant with the Jews from the Old Testament, in which Sabbath was required to be observed as commanded in the book of the law. This was promised in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Jesus was not being irreverent. He was being practical and pointing out that the Sabbath wasn't about outward actions, but the state of the heart. Now, what about this kind of anticlimactic uh, situation of Jesus wandering off after he healed our invalid friend? It certainly wasn't the normal behavior when Jesus performed miracles with others. So why? As Stephen noted, in most examples of Jesus' healings, the individual came to a recognition of their need for Christ and a knowledge by faith that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah. And so by their faith, Jesus allowed for their healing. 
In this instance, it doesn't appear that this man had any idea who Jesus was, nor did he seem to care. He was just discussing his life circumstances with someone who had engaged him. He was no doubt mystified by the healing, but simply did as Jesus said, picked up his bed and walked off. Jesus, too, seems to have simply continued on his way without further instruction, which he usually gave to those who had benefited from his miracles. As we've discussed over the past several weeks, Jesus knew the hearts of men, and so it seems that he must have known that this man was not moved or would not be moved by the healing and chose to move on to others in hope of their faith and therefore their salvation. The healed invalid is next, next approached by the Pharisees who make it clear that carrying his bed on the Sabbath is forbidden. And he's basically trying to get out of trouble here. And he says, well, I was just doing what the man who healed me instructed. When they ask who it was, we see that the man did not know. Now, let's, let's look at this a second. Can you imagine, someone comes up, you've been in, in, uh, an invalid for 38 years, and someone walks up and you are instantly healed. Don't you think you might have at least a little curiosity about who it was? It just seems implausible to me that he wouldn't have even been curious enough to try to figure that out. We're then told later that Jesus encounters the man again, but this time in the temple. And he finally gives him some additional instruction when he says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man still demonstrates no gratitude or recognition, nor does he seem to value Jesus' gift. But Jesus was concerned not only for his physical health, but his spiritual health. This is one of the times where we don't see an immediate spiritual healing in conjunction with the physical healing. The healed invalid now goes back to the Pharisees and tells them that it is Jesus who healed them. This certainly enraged the Pharisees, because not only was Jesus healing on the Sabbath, but he told a man to violate the Sabbath. So they approached Jesus, seeking to question him on his actions. Plus, they were already looking for any excuse, any excuse they could to undermine his ministry, and actually to kill him. They saw him as the ultimate threat. Jesus answers them simply by saying, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, this would have been considered blasphemy, because Jesus, in this statement, refers to God as his father. So the Pharisees would see Jesus as having put himself on a status equal to God, which, obviously, people did not do that. That was considered blasphemy. So let's go back to the threefold purpose of Jesus addressing the man in, at the pool. It seems that Jesus got his attention because they engaged in a conversation. It also seems he kindled some desire in the man to pursue healing, yet we see that the man does not respond as we would expect. There's no gratitude, no expression of understanding that he has received a gift of inestimable value. And ultimately, we see no evidence that this man understands or accepts Jesus as the Messiah. He doesn't exhibit a faith following this miraculous event. We do know, we don't know what ultimately becomes of this man. He may have come to a faith in Jesus later in life, or not. But as we have heard recently, we may not see the fruits of the seeds we sow. That doesn't mean we aren't to continue sowing. Others will come and water and weed. And in God's timing and mercy, Someday, fruit will come forth. 
So what are we supposed to learn out of this encounter and the controversy that surrounded it? First, I think we need to value, uh, examine the value of the Sabbath, a day of rest or refraining. In terms of its value to our mental and spiritual health, studies have proved that taking time off from routine tasks gives us time to refresh and come back being more productive and focused. Also, taking the time to focus on Scripture and the importance of spiritual disciplines is a fundamental part of our own spiritual journeys. Our culture has gotten so busy and so intense that we don't take time to slow down and be reflective. Our brains and bodies weren't made to be nonstop 24-7. Just look at what studies that examine the results of sleep deprivation. People become unable to function. We're so stressed keeping up with our schedules that we forget to take time to shut down, to relax, to focus on our spiritual lives. This is the value of Sabbath. Some say that Christians are not obligated under the Sabbath law. And I would agree. Jesus came as the new covenant. Yet, there's a lesson to be learned about Sabbath, about the time of reflection, about taking time to focus on God. But our observation of Sabbath should not get tied up in legalism. The Pharisees added these 39 melakot, the rules and regulations of the Sabbath, into the mix. But God wants us to direct his attention to him. It's awfully hard to focus our attention on God when we're so busy trying to stay in the lines following the rules and regulations. They can actually become a distraction to our focus on God. Jesus demonstrated that it was the heart of man that he wanted, not a blind obedience to a man-made set of rules. We also need to acknowledge that whether or not we see the ultimate fruits of our sowing, it's still important to sow. It is more likely that you will never see the outcome of the work that you uh, do when you introduce someone to the gospel, but that someone else will be there when the realization that a person needs their savior actually happens. A famous Chinese proverb states, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is now. We must continue to plant seeds. The Holy Spirit will determine the time of the harvest. We're not absolved of the responsibility of planting just because we don't see the final outcome. So take time for the Sabbath. Refresh your soul in the one who is the living water. But remember, it's a matter of the heart, not a matter of rules. And continue the sowing, no matter whether you are the one there when the fruit actually comes ready for harvest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom that you give us, the wisdom of, of providing for a time of rest, and also the wisdom of recognizing that it is a matter of focus on you. It's a matter of our hearts. It's not a matter of rules. It's not a matter of what man puts over the intent that you have for us. And Lord, give us a heart to reach people, to go beyond ourselves, and to remember that a, a time of, of sowing and planting is followed by a time of waiting before we can reap the harvest. So give us patience 
as we do the work of planting or as we do the work of watering and weeding or if we're there to actually reap the harvest. We thank you for the blessings you give us and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.